Hello, my friends. Welcome to Let's Talk. My name is Shay Marville, and I think one of the most important skills in this world is being able to have a conversation with a friend or a foe. Let's Talk is a podcast about listening, growing, connecting, and hoping through compassion and talking. And I mean really talking about the good things and the hard things, and with remarkable people living in a remarkable time. So let's talk. Hello, my friends. Welcome to Let's Talk. On today's episode, I have the great privilege of welcoming ethical fashion activist, journalist, researcher, educator, and now Dr. Sass Brown. It's been a long time since I've seen this good friend. Sass, welcome. Welcome to Let's Talk. Sass, I'm so glad that you're here. And I mean, it's been uh, two decades since we've actually hugged each other and seen each other. Um, And I'm so proud of what you've been doing because you're like, you're one of these human beings who actually has a belief system and then lives and and works and builds and acknowledges that system as you are making, creating and teaching. And I'm just, you're so true to that. You're, I'm, I'm speaking absolutely honestly. You're so true to that. I've known you for 30 years and, and I love what you're doing with fashion and and you know um, the environment and and advocacy about about what we can do in a practical way. So welcome. That's a very long, long no, like kind of you know. It's funny. I was trying to think of the last time that, or maybe the first time that we met, and it was really um, Science Center, Toronto Science Center, and that exhibition. And I did a piece for a, a coat which was. Uh, inscribed with really painful memories that I yes. went through at the time. <laughs> yeah, it was during Question of Truth, and yeah. we were looking at we were uh, decolonizing yeah. fashion and, and and looking at natural materials, use yeah. of natural materials. Really, it was powerful, and it was a powerful way to meet you. It was powerful. I, 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 yeah, it was a powerful time. And gosh, the journey has continued and gone on since then. I'm still talking about now it's about decolonizing the curriculum, but nevertheless, it's still a, a direct offshoot of those conversations, really. It is, you've been teaching for so um, many years. Like, I mean, you sort of left, you didn't, did you leave fashion and, and, and start teaching? I did as, as a designer, but right. not as an advisor. So I still work with brands on occasion or more often with artisans or women's cooperatives or the emerging creative communities around the world, but rarely as, a, as someone employed as a designer anymore. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And you've just completed your PhD. So I want to hear, mm-hmm. I want to hear about that, your dissertation, uh, but where, like, what's fashion now as we live through this pandemic? What, what is? You know, it's such a divisive word to begin with. Fashion, by default, we tend to think of it as something that's trend-driven, that's seasonal, etc. Um, and of course, it doesn't have to be that. But it's our sort of default term. And fashion, by default, has um, trend is trend-driven and has a shelf life. But it, The reality is, you know, I I use the word fashion, but most of the time I mean clothing. 
Um, yes. And I mean clothing with a sense of style, not <laughs> basic, ordinary, boring. So, um, it, and so much has gone on. And I mean, fashion has always been a reflection of our world. It's how we express ourselves visually for the most part, mm-hmm. how we judge other people. Um, it tells a lot about our tastes, but our values, so many things about us. And so it's always been a representation of what's been going on around us or a rebellion against it, you know, such yes. as the 60s hippie child during the 19, during the, you know, post-war uh, technological consumer explosion. So it's either an, an expression or a, a rebellion against it. And we've got so much going on in the world in the last yeah. few years, so much has shifted. I mean, right now with the global pandemic that has, you know, horrendously impacted um, production around the world, mostly offshore production, but certainly um, local as well, with orders being cancelled and, you know, um, makers being left in the lurch and unpaid, factory owners, etc. We've got the Black Lives Movement, which you know, even here in the UK, obviously we're a little bit more removed. I spent the last twenty years in the states, so yes. <laughs> you know. well. And you and you've always been, uh, uh, you know, in the three decades that I've known you, you have always been uh, somebody who was focused on the rights of others and Black Lives Matter. In many ways, without the term, mm-hmm. mattered to you. Yeah. 30 years ago. How did did you get that way? Like, how did that become something that was important to you? Oh, God. Um, It was, uh, it it was embroidered on that jacket, actually, or printed on that jacket that was in the Toronto um, Science Museum. Um, And it was, uh, it was an event in my life that was extraordinarily painful at the time, mm. but turned out to change my entire worldview. And, and like many people, I have to say, it wasn't from an altruistic space. It wasn't, I need to be involved in something bigger than myself and I need to make a, a difference. It was about something that very personally impacted me. Mm. Um, and it was my response to that that made the difference. So going back, God, how long is it now? What, 30 years? Yeah. And it was who I thought was my first soulmate and the love of my life. Mm. Um, and uh, I won't mention his name because it's been a very long time. He'd be horrified now probably. But um, <laughs> he was um, from South Africa. Yes. Um, so black South African. And um, he introduced me to a lot of things. Um, first and foremost, the, uh, he introduced me to a, a writer called Chikanta Diop, an African writer on Afrocentric yes. uh, history, a book called The African Origins of Civilization, the very first Afrocentric piece of literature I ever wrote. And I remember being about three pages into this book, and it was obviously talking about the African origins of civilization and they're talking about ancient Egypt and they're doing of African origin. And I'm reading this book and going, wait, Egypt was African? And, and I've got these two dichotomous things going on in my brain. One going, 
well, yeah, I guess it's on the continent of Africa. Yeah. And the other thing is going Elizabeth Taylor and, <laughs> you know, Hollywood right. and Elizabeth Taylor playing Cleopatra, you know, and how often in museums Egypt is, is not in the African section. It's in the Mediterranean Gulf. Yes, exactly. And I'm thinking, I am an idiot. Why did I ever, why did it never cross my mind that ancient Egypt and the civilizations on the north of Africa were actually African. And then on the other hand, I'm thinking of all of the things that have influenced that perspective that made me think of Elizabeth Taylor as something <laughs> that came to mind when I thought of, you know, Cleopatra. Um, and it was just this big awakening moment for me. Anyway, this um, individual I fell the most in love with I have ever been, possibly. Well, maybe not ever in my life now, but, you know, at the time, really thought he was my soulmate. And um, we were going to move in together and then completely out of the blue to me, um, he, he ended our relationship and I could not understand why. And at the time he was going through just a, a, a consciousness awakening of who he was, where he came from, what his roots were, what his value systems were, um, what that meant in choices with people around him, with people he dated. Was he valuing, um, you know, white beauty over African beauty, mm-hmm. a man of African descent, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. And it was never about whether he loved me or not. It was about he couldn't make that choice and choose me over someone uh, from his own, own background um, as he was going through this journey, which, yes. as you know, is, is a, a really difficult and very painful journey yes. for people to go through that conscious mm-hmm. uh, recognition of your own history and your own roots and how that relates to... Um, a racist colonist system that we live within, within the West in general. And so um, I was beyond devastated. I did some of the most embarrassing things I've ever done in my life. <laughs> as I tried to come to terms with this, um, understanding what went on. And effectively, I spent the rest, the next five years of my life, getting over a nine-month-long relationship (laughs) through every reading, every talk, every conference, every meeting I could get to that helped me understand why could possibly someone who loved you this much choose not to be with you because of the colour of your skin and what that represents. And that took me a long time and a very painful process. And was it, I mean, I don't think it matters length of time of how you love someone and how long you were in a relationship with them. It's about like, uh, it's about the intensity and the relationship you have with a person. But I, I wondered, was, is it that that experience opened a new paradigm, a new lens for you about how to see the world and how, how you saw yourself in the world. Exactly. Um, that's exactly what it did. And, and I went through my own sort of mini version of a consciousness journey, if you like. And the stages where I really hated being white. And I hated what that represented in terms of my own history and, and how I benefited from that through white privilege. Mm. Um, and so it was 
my own mini version uh, and, and, you know, nothing in comparison to what people of African descent have to go through. But nevertheless, it did change totally my worldview and totally um, my understanding of systems, of people, of place, of values, um, of considerations, um, everything, yes. And, and that's sort of, it's been there ever since to greater and lesser degrees. Mm. Um, but yes, it's, and of course, Black Lives Matter brought everything um, to a head for so many people, including a great many white people who suddenly realized, you know what, it's no longer okay to say, I don't see color. <laughs> I have one black friend or I'm not racist, <laughs> it's them over there. <laughs> um, we have to understand that we live and we benefit from uh, a system that is, is a, a a result of colonialism and imperialistic thinking and is exclusionary by default. Mm. And unless we are open to that and we see it and we look for it, and it has to be conscious, mm. um, you know, because it's not as obvious to most white people. You don't generally walk into the room and go, wait, I'm the only white person in here. You know? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and that, that's part of the privilege, right? Like part of the privilege is that you, Absolutely. you know, you're raised to, to think of yourself as normal, normal and yes. the norm, right? And do you think, uh, well, gosh, oh golly, oh my goodness. <laughs> I like, I have a million questions for you. I feel like we could be here for five more hours, but uh, I, do you think that we are in a better place in 2021 in terms of uh, racial awareness, or do you think we're further behind? Yikes. You know, I think there's two answers to that and they're diametrically opposed. On the one hand, yes, I think what the murder of George Floyd brought to many, many people's attention, particularly people who are not of African descent was, you know what, there's no more sitting on the fence. You're either part of the problem or you're part of the solution. You need to be an ally or you need not to be an ally, but you need to make a decision with this. And you need that needs to be a conscious decision and it needs to be in your mind all of the time. It needs to be something that you're aware of when you're in a room, when you're at a conference, when you're speaking, when you're particularly in an academic format, when you're sharing information. Mm and histories and so on, that there isn't just one. And yours is no necessarily better than anybody else's. So I think on the one hand, that has pushed some very difficult conversations on a lot of people that otherwise would never have had them. It's also pushed a lot of people who have chosen to be an ally to, you know, swallow their pride a little bit and go, you know what, I may know some things, but I don't know everything. Let me mm. use the platform. Let me hear what you have to say mm. rather than, you know, what I've learned. Um, so I think on the one hand, it has forced a lot of people to take sides, to be vocal, and to have, um, for that to play a part in how they act and react to situations. Um, on the other hand, of course, we've just lived through Trump. I mean, you know, you couldn't get a, a, a character that is more <laughs> prejudicial, racist, misogynistic. I mean, just about every ist you can think of that mm -hmm. 
the reverse of being forward thinking and being inclusive and you know so i i think that there's two sides to this coin um at least at least two sides i I wonder about you know all the people who also feel that they can't tell the truth about their own experience so that if there's blackness and and there is a history to how uh, people of black and African descent have been treated. What about how people of white descent and different kinds of white have been treated? And where where do you locate yourself in that? I mean, I, I think there's a lot of conversations to be had. And I don't think in order to recognize uh, colonization and the results of it, uh, the devastating results of it, that that means you have to deny who you are as as a person and you know, whiteness is a, is a construct just as blackness is. Exactly, but it's a construct we live with in our daily yes. lives, you know, and we see identifiers of, our, of it around us all of the time. I just saw another meme on my social feed about uh, a, a black woman who is selling her house got two uh, quotes from realtors who quoted it at a certain time. She had a, a white friend stand in for a third quote, and the quote was, you know, at least 25% higher than when she showed the realtors around. So, I mean, there are just all of these things, and you think, how can that be? <laughs> I mean, really? <laughs> Not to be overly superficial here, but... Uh, Let's, can I bring up Pierce Morgan for a moment? Oh, God, yes. Sorry, just, 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 just briefly, what do you, I mean, I think his mentality sort of represents a lot of people who are like, well, you know, there's no, there's no real problem and you're, you know, you're making everything about race and mm-hmm. when it's not, do you, I mean, you probably don't think about him very often, but when you do. Discussion on um, uh, Meghan Markle is yes. really insightful because this is, I think, where you know many people who have these embedded prejudices and are representative of the systems around them mm. don't recognize it within themselves. They go, "Well, you know, I'm not Donald Trump. I'm not." Yes. Yes. Spoken. <laughs> I'm, I'm. You know. Not, and so they don't sit within themselves. They don't recognize those implicit biases. And I think, was it Alex Beresford? Yes. The weatherman who called yes. him out when he walked off the show, who clearly did, and he did it in such a respectful way in many ways. I mean... Uh, oh, he, he did. He way did. more control than and, I could be. And, I, and what was so interesting, I, I read Pierce's uh, observation of himself afterwards, and he was you know, basically saying that Alex, he had helped Alex and he'd given him all this advice. And, you know, that's, you know, in the, they were sort of friends and that that he would use that moment to grandstand and call him out. He he just couldn't tolerate it. And I, and I thought, there's denial right there. <laughs> and a complete lack of recognition of the part yeah. play within that system that perpetuates these values and these biases. And that, that's what's hugely problematic. If, if a multitude of people are working within a system that 
devalues other people's opinions and worldviews and experiences and doesn't see them as valid and doesn't see that that's an implicit bias within, bias within themselves, that's hugely problematic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Clearly. No, no it is. system, right? <laughs> it, it is. And, and I think there's no way through any of this without doing all this stuff and all this work and having um, all these conversations that are hard and, and, and actually not always talking to one another. But I do think, you know, one of the things I really appreciate about you is that I think that your uh, role and your voice in having these conversations that are anti-racist is not about, you know, representing a group. It is not about doing the politically correct thing. It's about being a thoughtful person living in the world and looking at all sorts of things, all sorts of paradigms, including, you know, what we put on our body and who's making those things and, and what do they, what they have access to. And I like this, the, the way you, I mean, I relate to the way you look at the interconnectedness of, of oppression and of domination. I think this is a really enlightening point of view. Thank you. I've um, got a long way to go, and we all do. But you know what? In, uh, as an educator, it's my responsibility to be inclusive. It's my responsibility to recognize that the way I have learned and the histories I have are not everybody's, and it's, it's not appropriate to impose those on other people if it's not theirs. So I, I mean, you know, fashion industry is 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 a funny is a funny industry. It really is. Um, think of it as because it's trend driven as being a very forward thinking industry. But yes. the reality is the systems that it is built on are incredibly out of date yes. and no longer fit for purpose. Um, and but it's a big system. It's a huge industry. And there are so many biases and prejudices implicit within it. If we look at body type, our ideal beauty um, of, uh, you know, our ideals of age, Mm -hmm. all of these things are tied up within the educational system, within the fashion system. You know, I mean, we look at size alone. Your average runway model is a size zero you know, that's less than 1% of the population, probably. I mean, I'm pulling that figure out of my head. (laughs) It's not many people can aspire to a runway model's um, physical attributes. Not before the age of 15. (laughs) Or not after the age of 15. (laughs) For many people, it's a physical impossibility no matter what they do. Because yes. it's a very, very narrow ideal of beauty. You know, it, inevitably it's predominantly white. Ideally, it's probably blonde and blue haired. It's a minimum of five foot eight and a size zero. If we're talking about fashion models. Yes. When the reality, I'm going to jump around between continents and sizes and numbers here, which yes. represents how many places I live and <laughs> have lived <laughs> and my confusion with figures. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if we look at, so, you know, an average UK person, it's size 16 is the average size in the UK. A mm. size 16, five foot five in height. 
What relationship does that person have to a runway model? It's a physical impossibility, no matter how much they diet, no how much um, intervention surgically they have or anything else, they're never going to be that. Add to that race and color and physical body types. Mm-hmm. You know, you're talking about devaluing the beauty of our incredible diversity that mm-hmm. really should be valued and promoted and shared as diversity of beauty, not a single ideal. And that ideal is represented in everything we do from, you know, who we choose as as, um, celebrities and acts, not just the models on the runway, but our advertising campaigns, our icons in general. Um, And and the response to that is a body dysmorphia. that 99% of women are unhappy with who they are because they know they can never attain that. Mm -hmm. If we go back to the US and we talk about figures, 89% of girls by the age of 17 have already dieted. They haven't finished growing yet. Mm. 15% of women have an eating disorder of some form. That's pandemic scale. That's enormous, you know. 9% of of, um, nine-year-olds have already experimented with bulimia. Wow. Because they think it will help them lose weight. They think they're overweight. And and that will help them to become more acceptable. This is our, somehow this is the belief system that you're more. Absolutely. And that's only exacerbated with, you know, the digital age where it's about the image and the selfie and everything else, Right. So you've been at, uh, you've been teaching for a long time now, <laughs> teaching a lot, a lot of young women, young men. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile, you know, your belief system about the world we're living in and teaching within a system a colonized system that that perpetuates certain ideas and ideas of beauty. How do you as an educator intersect with that? I, I mean, my area of expertise is sustainable fashion and sustainable fashion isn't just about making ecological choices that are better for the planet. They're about making ethical choices. Mm. People in the supply chain um, and, and the people you are producing your product So depending upon what my role is within the academic system, you know, uh, very often historically the problem has been I'm that person they wheel in for the one lecture, right? They'll have (laughs) a whole class on how do you make make products cheaper and quicker? Then they look in and they go, there you go, there's your sustainability lecture. (laughs) We do sustainability in our class. That, That is problematic, um, the, the ubiquitousness of the term sustainability and the misunderstanding of it mm. um, and uh, counterbalanced by the need and the inclusivity of it is problematic. But for me, it, it's as much about ethics. It's as much about the people that produce our goods, the places where our goods are produced, their stories, their fashion histories. Yes. And that has to be implicit in everything I do. 
So if I'm talking about fashion history, it if it's from a Western perspective, usually it won't be, but if it's a very short sort of presentation, I'll be very clear that this is a Western perspective. And this is not the only fashion history or necessarily the best one. I might be teaching in a Western university or I might be, but I have to be very clear of that. And invariably within any talk about sustainability, there's always a focus on standards of beauty, of inclusivity and inclusivity, of representation, of um, diversity and inclusion, of cultural appropriation. Mm. You know, one of my greatest passions is textiles. Yes. I listen. I remember your 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 space, your store uh, on Queen Street in Toronto. Like it, it was sort of off, like in a factory type area. And I re- just I remember being in that space and all the materials and you know like and wanting to touch everything. And it just <laughs> I I just it just in terms of the sensation of touch and the beauty of the, all the different materials. I just think, oh, I know, I know that's your, your that, I know that's your jam. That's I mean, your jam. It's material culture, right? That's what yeah. it is. Physical representation of our skills, our histories, our values. And textiles can communicate so much, especially when they come from artisanal communities where you're talking about traditions that have been handed down over generations and have all of these embedded meanings and codes. Mm. So yeah, textiles is, is uh, a means of storytelling. Ah, uh, yes. Now you've, you've been spending a lot of time in Dubai, right? What is that like? Like, I mean, you're a, you really, you're a Brit, American, American, Brit, Canadian. I don't know what you categorize yourself. I don't know what I am. But, 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 you know, but then you, you, you spent so much time in, in, in. Dubai. I spent two years. Dubai, like, yeah. yeah. And going back and forth. Like, what, what are materials like there? Like, how, were you really uh, influenced? Did it change how you taught after, after being there? Um, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I went to Dubai for a particular opportunity. Dubai in that region of the world is, is, is relatively unique. Obviously, there's. Um, we're talking about non-democratic countries mm. um, with many of them with an enormous amount of wealth. Um, what that means in terms of business, of education, of all of those things is that um, if those are benevolent royal families or governments or whatever, it means they are invested in the future of their people, of their families, and they make significant um, investment in it. One of the challenges that we have with the democratic system is it's tied to a three or a four year political term. Mm. Um, So there isn't the um, encouragement to do really long term, huge investments. It's the reverse of that in the non-democratic world because it's more about their children and their children's children, in fact, than about themselves. Now that has good and bad representations, obviously. Um, But one of the things about Dubai, Qatar, you know, many of those regions of the world is they make these huge investments. And I'm not just talking about money, I'm talking about time and effort. Interesting. to do things that just simply aren't possible in other parts of the world. So I went out there because I was offered an opportunity 
to be the founding dean of a new university, which was in collaboration with MIT um, in Boston and with Parsons New School in New York. So you had the technology and the innovation on the one hand from Massachusetts Institute, and you had the fashion uh, component coming from Parsons and the fashion culture coming from them so it was a fantastic opportunity that I would never have been offered or given the opportunity to whether in the states or in the UK or pretty much anywhere in the west so it was opportunity I grabbed with both hands and it was an incredible enriching um, opportunity where I got to, to build a school and a culture an internal culture within it with the faculty and with the students and it was incredibly rewarding now that's juxtapositioned against, you know, clearly there are political, there are social yes. um, challenges within that region of the world. There were faculty I wanted to hire, but I couldn't because they were gay. And it, it, while a blind eye is turned to that in many instances, it's asking people to deny a part of who they are. Yes, yes, um, unsafe. The, so unsafe in so many ways, right? So th there are obviously situations in, in several of those countries that I disagree with, mm -hmm. um, but um, you, there are compromises everywhere you are. Um, yes. And because of the position, and I don't mean the position that I had, but the ability that I had to, to foster change, mm -hmm. I, I made those compromises um, it took a toll to a degree, um, yes. and that's why I am no longer there to a degree. <laughs> um, but it was still an incredibly enriching opportunity, and it opened my eyes to a part of the world that I had very little personal experience of. So, I mean, the ability to travel from there to Egypt, to Qatar, to Kuwait, to, yes. you know, um, all around and those incredibly rich textile histories in those places uh, was, was fabulous. So, and the people, and yeah, that was amazing. Now, <laughs> now you've returned to the UK. You, uh -huh. did, did you mean to return or was it, was it the pandemic that kind of no, uh, got was, you stuck? There? It was one of those things I, 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 in Dubai, a series of events made me come to the conclusion that um, I was no longer happy being in the position I was in and that the restrictions now outweigh the benefits in my right. case. So I rather unexpectedly handed my notice in, <laughs> in a bit of emotional <laughs> um, situation. Um, which was at first denied. <laughs> I sat on it for another two, three weeks and said, yep, still want to hand the notice in. And they said, all right. Oh, so boy. It was not a plan. Um, it happened um, just, a, the, you know, the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. You yes. make so many compromises and so many compromises and, and one all of a sudden is a bridge too far. Yes, yes. So, I decided to leave. And of course, I've been headhunted all over the flipping planet up until that stage, because here I was in this fantastic position of founding dean of a new university in partnership with MIT and Parsons, and everybody wanted me 
to go work from them now. I handed my notice in everything <laughs> dried up and I never got an offer. So plan B was, um, you know, well, I, I, I was in the middle of doing my PhD, which had been suffering incredibly in that position because obviously it was an all-encompassing position. Of course. Um, and even prior to that, where I was interim dean and associate dean at FIT in New York, um, so my PhD had slowly over the years been, instead of progressing, going down the toilet. <laughs> um, but you know what? I'm going to take some time off. Um, the right position isn't coming up. Um, I'm just going to take the time off. I'm going to step away and I'm going to concentrate on this PhD. So it was at this critical stage where I either, I either dove into it and I completed it or I let it go. And, I and, and what is it about? What is your PhD? <laughs> It's on um, the models of operation that sustain craft-based businesses around the world. So, yikes. <laughs> wow. And, and what a time to actually have that type of um, research yes. at your fingertips because yes. this is survival time for so many artisans and, yes. and craftspeople globally. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, they've, you know, many have been struggling for a long time for the real value of their work to retain it, to be recognised, you know, in the face of cultural appropriation, in the face of um, now the pandemic and loss of orders. So absolutely. So, so effectively, I stepped away from everything. I stepped away from my writing, my commercial writing. I stepped yes. away from my website, from my blog, from pretty much everything and just became a hermit for two years to power through this PhD and complete it. And of course, in the midst of that, there was a global pandemic. So, I mean, doing a PhD is an incredibly isolating experience to begin with. Yes. Um, but then I had a global pandemic and it was in a city that was not home to me. I didn't know a living soul. It was not London, it was Manchester. Oh. Um, and so an incredibly isolating, but very focused two years. So now yes. I've just come out the other end and thankfully we look like we're becoming coming out of at least some of the lockdown in the UK. So yeah, we're slowly, you know, breaking it, breaking it down. Are you going to stay in the, in the UK? Do you know? I think so. I mean, I never say never because you never know what comes up, you know. Right. Tendency of being one of those people that, you know, closes their eyes and leaps when an opportunity comes up. Okay, that sounds good. You want me to move around the other one side of the world? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we will see. But London is, is effectively home. It has always been home, although I haven't lived here for 30 years. Um, I think that London is such an amazing city, you know, historically, architecturally, artistically, creatively. Yes. Um, it's incredibly diverse. Yes. I believe that anyone can find their tribe in London. And that's, that's planned. That's the next plan. Find my tribe here. <laughs> <laughs> I have a feeling that your tribe is international, right? It so is. Um, <laughs> it is. I, because we're part of the, I, I want, like, we're part of the tribe, right, together. <laughs> and I, I think that's what's also fascinating about this pandemic is that, you know, there, I don't know about you, but there's, for me, there's been, there were so many things I didn't want to do online before yeah. the pandemic. And now it's the only way and it's not that bad. Yeah. yeah it's not I, that bad. 
it has maintained friendships for me in other parts of the world. I mean, I don't think pre-pandemic I would have had a regular uh, social with my friends. On, yes, you know, that's where right. We put time aside on a Sunday with a glass of prosecco and catch yes. up. Yes, that's yeah. right. That's right. And I don't mean that the pandemic isn't bad. The pandemic is bad, but I mean the technology and access to friends and family and people we care about through technology is now better. Yeah, it's forced many of those connections in a digital space that perhaps would have slid a little bit more without them, so yeah. And and so um, what's next after the PhD? Well, I mean, I literally did my defense on Wednesday. (laughs) I'm still decompressing, but I am officially now Dr. Brown, which is like super exciting. (laughs) I love it. I love it. um, I have a a new position at Kingston University London, which is super exciting. They're one of very few universities I was interested in teaching at. Um, and they've brought me in specifically to write a new master's on sustainable fashion, which is really fun, which is why I took the position. Dr. Brown, that's wonderful. <laughs> so that's, that's really cool. I need to find my pride. Thank you. I need to build community here. Um, yes. I'm very lucky where I live. I, I moved into a live workspace. We have all of these common office rooms and yes. communal spaces, which has been great during lockdown. You know, I can get out yes. of my home without leaving the building. Um, but it means I have the ability to um, put get-togethers here, social events. Yes. you in Brooklyn, you know, with the eco-fashion community. Yes. One come around and just connect. Um, on a very sort of, you know, ad hoc casual basis to bring something for the bar or something for the table, you know, potluck kind of thing. Yes, yes. You know other people in this space. Let's talk about our problems. Let's talk about how we can support each other and make communities. So I'm desperate to start that again. Kickstart the website. Again, only not the previous website, not Eco Fashion Talk, but specific on telling the stories of global artisanship and material culture and its connections to um, fashion and accessories and so on. Um, book three, I hope, um, again, specific to artisanship. Yes. And a whole bunch of academic publishing I have to do. But one of the fun things that I hope will come out of this, and I haven't yet um, really done an enormous amount of research because I need some funding for this, is to bring the research that I did in the PhD Mm -hmm. onto a digital open source platform. Effectively, the outcome of the research was best practices, guides and and tools for designers with emerging or bigger brands that want to work with artisans and the ethics and the processes. Because one of the problems is people want to either as a result of their education or just a result of the system of fashion, they want to put artisans in the supply chain and that doesn't work. Right, right. That way ethically with them. You have to understand that them, their systems, their processes, their calendars, all of those things. So what I want to do is effectively build a Prince's Trust. I don't know if you know the Prince's Trust. It's um, Prince Charles. Yes. I think explain it, explain it for for our listeners who may not know. Uh, a ubiquitous tool that guides you to set up a business, any type of business. It's not specific about, it walks you through the processes that you have to go through 
to understand how you finance a business, how you promote it, how you develop product, all of those things. So it's a, a, a toolbox or a guidebook to how you set up business um, and all of the things you should know and need to know or research to do that. So I want to do that, but the much more high-tech, digital, interactive platform right. um, and specific to designers working with artisans and global artisanship around the world. So be this guidebook, and I want it to be open source if I can. So I may have to be a paywall on some of it because yes, know, things I've learned over the years is we have to sustain ourselves too. This is your work. That's right. And, and when we sustain ourselves... We, and we have more, we can do more. I was, I was uh, interviewing a really fascinating uh, business woman yesterday who is a, she's got a mortgage business and, and she does incredible things all over the world. And it's all because she has this very successful mortgage business. So, I mean, I think we all have to decide continually, you know, what matters and yeah. how do we make what matters matter, yes. right? Oh my God, Dr. Brown, Sass, <laughs> Sass Brand, my friend, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've come on to our, you know, first year of the podcast, Let's Talk, and so I'm, reconnect. I'm so happy to reconnect with you, and I'm so excited for what you've done and what you're going to do. I want to wish you abundance in every way possible. M number one, health, love, money, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> And, and you. <laughs> and you, my friend. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining the conversation. We are growing an amazing community here at Let's Talk. Please share the show. Make sure you're subscribing and keep talking. And you can always reach out to me at CoachShayMarville.com or on Instagram at ShayMarvilleLet'sTalk. Let's keep talking.